it's a scary time to be in this country and be a person of colour, even if you have British citizenship. Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is how we continue to deal with the legacies of empire. This is a trigger warning to let you guys know that this episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people might find difficult to listen to. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Surviving Society Alternative to Women's Hour. I am really excited today to be joined by Avia Sarah Day. Hello Avia. Hi. Try my best not to fangirl, as if you know me, you know I get overexcited when I meet people that I really look up to, and Avia, you're definitely someone that I very much look up to, so it's been great to meet you today. Usually I'm I'm sat in an audience when you're speaking, and I'm just sat there like writing notes like, okay, okay, it's taking down what you're saying but yeah it's brilliant to have you here Avia is a lecturer in criminology at Birkbeck Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about yourself oh dear where do I begin so yeah I've started working at Birkbeck in September last year and it's great to work there obviously I've been on strike recently yeah you know the department and the people I'm working with there and the students are absolutely I, I just feel like actually quite lucky to be around the people that I'm working with there I definitely found myself because I I, went, I did my masters in psychosocial studies at Birkbeck and mm-hmm. I reckon I just found myself so much like yeah. being around the students there, being around the academics there. Yeah, Obviously, it's still beautiful. like an institution, so it's got its yeah, problems. Yeah, we still live in capitalism, but but Birkbeck <laughs> is such a yeah. It's the staff make Birkbeck amazing, yeah. and the students. I'm very very lucky to be there. I uh, just oh let me think a year or two ago like finished my PhD which looked at domestic violence and the criminal justice system and applied an intersectional lens outside of academia connected to it outside of it whichever way you want to look at it scholar activist blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah I'm involved in a few different like um, or have been involved in a few different activist groups generally around fighting austerity over the last sort of 10 years most recently been involved in Sisters Uncut and which is now a national network of groups fighting cuts to domestic violence services as well as state violence, which is obviously quite connected to my research. As well as that, I mean, you know, I come to my research and my activism because of my own personal experiences going back to when I was a kid. I'm always a bit, like, unsure about how to bring that, bring those experiences into, like, academia. I do it all the time with activism and kind of have to if you're organising on stuff that is important to you that is based on your personal experiences yeah. and also you're doing community organising it's kind of important to be able to connect with people and be like I've been through the same thing this is this is why I'm here mm. it's a little bit more difficult to do that in academia mm-hmm. or know when the right time and sometimes the wrong time is to yeah. sort of talk about your own personal experiences being working class like growing up in care like all of these not growing up but being in care when I was a kid and Things like that. The academy is a bit more difficult for that kind of thing. Trying, I'm trying to carve out some kind of space for myself where I can connect these things and where my research and what I teach is connected to my activism and is connected to what I'm doing in grassroots struggle. Yeah. <laughs> that totally makes sense. Particularly, it's not the same, but when I'm thinking about how I bring myself into the academy mm-hmm. and how my research informs is informed by my personal experiences, you're, you're kind of like making yourself vulnerable yeah. 
Um, and sometimes that vulnerability is not taken as it as you being vulnerable, yeah. and it means it sometimes means that people think they can question you and question your authenticity and validity, yeah. and that's not why you're sharing. And yeah. it's so interesting how. And there's sometimes students that do this, but other yeah. academics yeah. will take that almost, I think I think it's sort of almost like a form of radical kindness in the academy to share that's part of yourself. How they think that it's okay to pick that apart. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I really feel like we have to get better with that, particularly in what you're talking about with regards to care and domestic yeah. violence. Yeah, totally, totally. It's something that I'm still, you know, figuring this stuff out. This is my first, like proper academic job yeah (laughs) so you know I still feel very I'm very new in the game really like I don't really know what my you know role and what my existence within the academy is going to look like yet and how I'm going to be able to carve out that role so yeah it's it's a weird one and I I think Birkbeck I mean if if anywhere is going to be like the best place to be able to do that yeah um but yeah, definitely feel that that being I'm not very good at being vulnerable at the best of times anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I do, I, you know, I do see, I do see a point to it. I do, I do see like it is. It's important for me to be seen by my students for where I've come from. I know a lot of them are coming from similar similar places, and I want them to feel like they're in a space where, you know they're being um, taught and learning from people that have come from the same place and have those like similar perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is important to be able to bring that and to be open about that in some respects. I'll see, I'll see where it takes me, (laughs) the challenges it will bring. I think as well, I think it's really important that you also recognise, even though you just said about you're new to this and this is your first like academic post, like, they are really lucky in the institution, academia overall is very lucky to have you. And I think mm. that's what some of us, particularly that come from working class black backgrounds, mm. have to really embed within our practice that we belong here just as much as the other people. And in fact, they are very privileged to have us here talking from experience, connecting lived experience to theory, to practice, all that stuff. At the same time of you saying, oh, I'm learning the game. Like, <laughs> like that game, the way it is, the way academia is, isn't... It shouldn't be fixed and it should be yeah. open to radical change. And that radical change comes from people on the margins, I would say. Yeah, Definitely. I think I'm 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 starting to to feel that and there's, you know, I've actually been surprised at myself sometimes probably actually through the PhD and through being in the academy. It it does breed this kind of self-doubt that actually I don't think I really had as deeply as when I went like when I started. It's mad, isn't it? It's I don't like... remember being that. Like I'm a relatively confident person in general. Like I, you know, can can hold my own in a lot of situations. But it yeah, definitely being in the academy really pushed pushed the boundaries of that for me. And like it's you know, constantly wrestling with my feelings of like inadequacy and self doubt. And also kind of like feeling a bit alien, like I'm not I'm not used to feeling like this. Mm. I'm used to just like survival mode, going out there, doing it, just doing my thing. I'm not used to, you know, being made to feel this way. So like, yeah, it's good to hear you say that, mm. Chantal, honestly. Cause... It's, a pa- it's a passive, <laughs> it's a systemic, passive, subtle reduction yeah. that unfortunately, like all sections of society inhibits 
black working class yeah. women in particular from being able to fulfill them like academically professionally be able to feel like they can fulfill themselves but we can but it's a fight because it, everything is set up yeah. sort of in the way of how we think how we are all, all that sort of thing and that's not to homogenize of course like liberation doesn't necessarily mean us all on the same journey but equally like the the academy it's got to change. <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. Uh, we went off a little bit of a tangent there about Sorry. academia. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but can you tell our listeners a little bit about Sisters Uncut, what the message is, what the role is as a as an organisation, yeah. the change potentially that Sisters Uncut have had um, yeah. with regards to policy, all that sort yeah, of thing? Yeah. So as if our listeners didn't know who Sisters Uncut are, get to know if you don't know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, tell, tell them. Um, so, yeah, Sisters Uncut started sort of 2014. By that point, austerity policies had been in effect for a few years and were really starting to hit home and really starting to impact a lot of people's lives. I was working in the domestic violence sector at the time and a few other people were. I've been involved in a few different activist groups before that. I started to just, not just me, but other people, survivors who were accessing services as well as people working in the sector, were just seeing just the horror that was the austerity policies actually being put into place. So just things like, you know, having to have just really deep conversations with, you know, I remember having a conversation with a woman who she had a council flat in London, lifelong tenancy, and an ex-partner who was threatening to kill her and, you know, really meant it. And I had to have a conversation with her about it's possible that if you leave this flat, you may not get secure tenancy again. And we can try and figure out a way to protect that. But, that you know, it is very precarious and it might might mean you not getting that again. And having to make that choice between your having secure long-term housing for the rest of your life or, you know, and staying and risking your life with this perpetrator. And I was just like having conversations like this with people day in, day out. And it was just heart-wrenching mm. to know what to tell someone in that situation. And it was at that point that a few of us were just like, this can't, This cannot continue. We've got to resist it. We've got to fight back. We can't just take this line down. And I should say, yeah, like, you know, a lot of us were coming from different positions, different experiences of domestic violence. In terms of my, you know, my own background, obviously, domestic violence was a really normalised part of my upbringing in the state that I lived in, in East London, generally. Every woman I knew had experienced some kind of domestic or sexual violence growing up on the estate that I grew up. I can't think of anyone at all that didn't. And it's a lot of the reason why I do what I do, like activism-wise, ac- academia-wise, all of that. And, yeah, like one of the most important things that really happened to me during that period, my best friend's mum was murdered by her dad when I was nine. And at the time, I did not recognise that as a trauma, but it, it was deeply, deeply traumatic I thought about it probably every day, well into my late teens. Where she lived was ever-present. She was taken into care and I didn't see her again. Even myself, you know, spending time in a refuge as, as a teenager, it all built up this these experiences to the point where when I did, made the decision to work in an area to help and I saw the deep, deep cuts that were being made, I was just like, I can't, I can't allow this to, to continue to happen I came into this to help people to stop 
what happened to the woman who was murdered, was her name was Mandy Graham. I don't want any more Mandy Grahams, I don't want that to happen to anyone else, and I could just see it just getting worse and worse. So yeah, we formed in 2014, a lot of us with this in mind and, and being really terrified, and initially the aim was to protect particular domestic violence services from being closed down. And we also had in mind that a lot of the services that were being closed down first were BME services as well, and those specialist services that were were so needed in the BME community. And so that was the, the first sort of idea. And initially, we kind of focused a lot more on like doing like spiky direct actions to try and highlight the problem, get it out there in the news and all of that. So our earlier actions were much more like occupying the red carpet of the suffragette That was premiere. amazing! <laughs> that was amazing! Yeah, that was, that was, <laughs> that was bold. <laughs> yeah, that was brilliant. Whose idea was it? Um, it was what, I remember one of the sisters, I remember me and another sister, I remember the person whose idea it was, we were walking on a march and, and she, and she said like, oh yeah, that film's coming out. And then she sort of said like, yeah, When's the premiere? <laughs> I love that. And then it like, re- and then I was like, oh my god! Like, yeah, such a such an amazing idea. And it really got them just to say as well. And I don't mm. know if this beca- is because I'm coming from a sociological perspective, mm. like, and an activist perspective. The messaging was mm. very clear yeah. from the national press. I would say yeah. what you were fighting for. Yeah. And if that's if that's just one amazing thing that's come from that, I think yeah. that's brilliant. Because um, people just don't, still in 2020, don't understand how bad the cuts have been. It's and how many people have fucking died. The, the and the, the, the murder rate, like, um, in terms of domestic violence, was pretty much stable for 20 years, and it is now going up. Oh, my God, and it has it been stable it, yeah. for, like, sort of since the 90s, and it is, you're starting to see a rise, and it's inevitable when you take away housing you take away all of the things that people need to survive your legal aid all of these things obviously it's going to have it it's going to have an impact if people even just things like benefits universal credit all of the the mess that comes with that mm-hmm. and the the fact that you know we've got one claimant per family and she's just locking people in forever yeah. locking um survivors in to abusive relationships so it's not surprising it's gone up but yeah Occupying the red carpet was, like, probably one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had in my entire life. Literally, jumped on, and then I looked up, I could see Helena Bonham Carter about a few feet away, like, almost immediately being interviewed about us, and then being like, oh, what do you think about this? And I was like, Helena Bonham fucking Carter, Jesus Christ. And then, like, people, like, all of these, like, celebrities were, like, kind of tiptoeing around us and over us. I was like, oh my god, it was absolutely surreal. But yeah, the the tagline of it, because like it was a celebration of women's rights and all the achievements have been made, which we obviously is amazing. But we were saying the fight is not over. You know, two women a week are murdered as a result of domestic violence, and dead women can't vote. Was the tagline of the action? I think we thought. You know, we 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 planned it so much that we thought only about the actual action itself. We didn't actually think about the press. 
We obviously we were doing it to get in the press, but we just were like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get past the security guards? How are we going to get to the right pen? It was just like that's all we thought about. And then we kind of, you know, if we got in the mirror in the Guardian, that'd be nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and you did. <laughs> and like it went like yeah. international and just yeah. like and it was off the back of that that like we you know different groups across the country wanted to set up Portsmouth, Don- Doncaster Sisters are absolutely my. I love them so much. <laughs> Edinburgh and and Glasgow and Bristol and Manchester, Birmingham, Brighton, Liverpool, like sisters groups setting up all over the country. I probably I haven't even named all of them, but Leeds is another one. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, Doncaster is like probably one of my favourites because like a lot of them are women who were older who had started organising during the miners' strike in the eighties, and they were just like the most militant, literally would, like, lie down in every council meeting, lie down in the road, like, oh, we've got our pension, fuck it, who cares? And they won, it was to win back Doncaster Women's Aid, and they did win it back through six months, I think, of of militant direct action. I was just like, take my hats off to you guys, honestly. You are absolute babes. Mm. That's amazing. Um, So, yeah, and then more recently, we've, I guess we've kind of developed our ideas as we've been doing direct action. So we didn't necessarily have, like, a really formalised understanding of our politics from day one. Like, we did to a certain extent, but we've also learned a lot along the way. We kind of learned a lot about domestic violence and state violence and the interconnections of domestic violence and state violence, particularly as all of these cuts are happening at the same time as a big law and order agenda where the money that's been taken out of housing, legal aid, all of that stuff, benefits, is being put into the criminal justice system system instead because we've got a right-wing government i mean to be honest this actually it's a far-right started... government i'd say now. Well, yeah. yeah it's like actually this did start under new labor yeah, tough yeah. on crime tough on causes, causes crime, crime blah blah yeah. blah and has continued and actually solidified and got like uh you know is actually widened they you know opening more prisons longer prison sentences and that's their if they've got any solution to domestic violence at all then it's that it's just the criminal Castle logics. Castle logics, exactly. So um, because of that, and because we started noticing a lot, you know, and I was, you know, lot of survivors I was working with getting arrested, um, we kind of changed some of our, uh, you know, our messaging and politics around that to focus more, um, as well on state violence and um, what it was doing to survivors. And that's kind of when um, in North London Sisters focusing on um, Holloway, the now closed down Holloway prison. Is it still a community space? Well. (laughs) um, For those that don't, sorry, I've just skipped to the end of a story probably. Do you want to start start (laughs) from the beginning? So yeah, like Holloway prison, sort of um, North Sisters actually started organising around Holloway prison when Sarah Reid, who was a black woman who was wrongly in prison there after she was actually getting uh, mental health support in a hospital and was sexually assaulted and defended herself and ended up in Holloway Prison, and she should never have been there. Um, and she she died there. A campaign started around that, and North London Sisters supported that campaign, and it wasn't that long after Sari Reid actually died. A decision was taken to actually close down Holloway Prison, not connected. It was just a decision because a lot of... The plan had been to close down a lot of these London big London prisons because they're now prime real estate. I'm going to sell them and make, you know, lots of, like, luxury apartments, blah, blah, blah. By this point, Sisters of Cut had actually, like, consensus to become a prison abolitionist group, which kind of posed a bit of a problem in terms of, like, okay, so this prison's being closed down. 
which obviously we want all the prisons to be closed down. However, the impact of that on the women there was that they're not being released from prison. They're just going to be distributed across the country to like 100 miles away from their family, family and friends yeah. and networks and stuff like that. So, it, you know, we obviously were like campaigning to for them to be released, but also to, you know, whatever they needed to um, for them to be safe. Um, and actually the closure of Holloway Prison was not necessarily going to make their lives easier. So it was quite a complicated one, that. Um, but they did close the prison. And a big campaign locally, like including like Reclaim Holloway, lots of other groups, really wanted, because of the trauma that Holloway Women's Prison had presented for, for you know, 150-odd years, you know, the suffragettes had been in prison there, like so much unbelievable levels of violence, violence. you know... Had, had occurred there you know the Holloway community really wanted to heal from that and wanted to be able to have social housing there for public good but also a women's building that would be a testimony to you know the history there but would actually provide women in that community with something positive and something good and community-led mm-hmm. and yeah North London Sisters Uncut then occupied part of the prison the closed prison with those demands in mind. And now, yeah, complicated because we've got a partial victory. Sadiq Khan loaned the money to Peabody Housing Association to buy the the site. There's, like, quibbles over how much of it is going to be social housing. So I think initially it was, like, 50% social housing or affordable housing, which is different from social housing because it's, like, can be up to 80% of market rate. I think Peabody, it's, like a bit less than that. And then the rest would be like part by part rent type kind of situations. A women's building was also included in the plans for that as well. So it's a partial victory, like sisters, Reclaim Holloway, all of these different groups in the area and individuals that have been fighting are still fighting for 100% social housing, proper social housing, of proper social rents and a community-led women's building. There's consultation going out at the moment. Okay. Mayor's Office for Police and Crime, MOPAC, kind of vaguely involved, which makes making people a bit suspicious yeah. of what that building's going to be used for, whether it's going to be one of these women's centres that's going to be criminal justice run. Um, but there's a big, lively campaign, um, community-led campaign, um, including um, formerly incarcerated women from Holloway who are fighting very hard for it to be a women's-led, a community-led women's building and social housing. So, yeah, kind of... A sort of partial victory, I'd say, but the fight is still very much on. Yeah, definitely. And that it's so important, as Angela Davis says to us, to when we're doing activism, take those wins. Like, yeah. and really embed yourself within those wins. Because yeah. that is incredible. Yeah. Like, given the the moment we're in politically, the fact that that, yeah. even part, if, even if part of that goes through, I mean, yeah. let's... let's Let's always aim for as big as possible. <laughs> but if part of that goes through, that is incredible. Yeah, like, it is amazing. And it was initially meant to be luxury apartment, contracted, blah, 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 blah. And the fact that Peabody have got it is obviously so much better for that community mm. than if dodgy contractors come and just do mm. these luxury apartments where half the building's empty anyway. It's amazing. It's amazing. I have to say, it's not just you know, North London Sisters Uncut, but all of these different groups, a really strong, broad coalition of people who do indirect action, of the, you know, those individuals in the community who go to every council meeting and scrutinise every document and look beneath, you know, what's being said and, like, holding them to account. 
you know, it's taken like all of these different like yeah. people, parties, whatever to to do it. And it's yeah, it's impressive and it's kind of a testament to like what can happen when you do like different groups do unite and different individuals do come together under this one thing that everyone agrees they want to try and achieve. Yeah, definitely. I think it's great. <laughs> and it's so interesting. And I don't know if because I bring my own subjectivities into this, but like hearing you talk, like even hearing the phrase women's centre, yeah. like just feels so alien now. Yeah. But like if it hadn't have been for refugees, women's centres, like yeah. I just wouldn't even be sat here now. Yeah. Like people in my family, the women in my family have been so reliant on those services. Yeah. Like, Post-2010 in particular, when you see all those cuts, like, sure start, like, we've spoke about it on this podcast before, but, like, it's worth repeating. So many of us would not be here without those places. And just imagine how many people that aren't getting those services, getting that support, having that community around them that need it. Like, it's just, I, I find it hard to even, like, switch on to how bad, how violent that is that we just don't have those spaces anymore because of how integral it was for me personally. And you are starting to see the impact of that, you know, on young people and how much pain people are in and how little direction people have. Mm. I'm really scared about the future of a lot of people, not just like in my community, in my own family. It's like life feels like it's never been so hard, like really hard. I'm talking to someone who's relatively, like, got some things going for them, but, like, you know, I'm the only person in my family that works, and, like, half my job, pretty much, is sorting out universal credit and stuff for other family members to make sure that they can survive. Mm -hmm. It's just, it is hard work. And when you don't even have the basics, you don't even have those additional things that were helping people, like Sure Start, like youth centres... Like somewhere to be, somewhere where you can talk to other people that are going through the same thing as you, or you can talk to some professional can help you with that form or whatever. I really just every week when I'm doing this stuff and I've got bloody PhD and I barely understand Universal Credit Journal, honestly. Mm. And I think what what is going on for all the people that don't have someone like me in their family to help them with this? Mm-hmm. And they can't go to the Citizen Advice Bureau anymore because that's getting cuts. Yeah. That, you know, they can't go to Sure Start or somewhere to... I'm like, what is happening to those people? I honestly dread to think. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, definitely. And just to bring that into more recently, mm-hmm. and I'll put it in the episode notes, Avia, your paper that mm. you've written and it's based <laughs> on like who who is it who's it written co-authored with it's Aisha Gill Aisha Gill yeah. and it's brilliant it's in the episode notes read it but what you talk about in that paper which I think is so powerful is obviously it's based on domestic violence and using intersectionality as a lens mm. to understand domestic violence but what I think you guys do really well is you talk about the intrinsic nature of the hostile environment, yeah. austerity and state violence and all of those effects and impacts on domestic violence for... Do we... Sorry, just quickly side note, survivors. Mm. Is that word a contested word? It's somewhat contested. I mean, yeah. between victim and survivor. I mean, generally speaking, I'd say the feminist movement has adopted the word survivor mm-hmm. as a kind of more empowering... Yeah kind of understanding of their subject position and and where yeah. and the experience that they've, they've had and and as well I think it's it's a kind of reaction to social services for instance and the way that they have conceptualized people who are experiencing domestic violence as victims as downtrodden as 
coming from feckless families that can't sort themselves out, mm. that actually the recognition of even when you're in, still in that relationship and still going through that, it takes an enormous amount mm. of power to get up every day, take kids to school, to navigate that situation, and that actually that is survival, mm-hmm. as well as the, the period afterwards when you're healing and recovering. It's kind of like a recognition of that. So, yeah, it's something that, you know, I, I find quite useful terminology for me mm. definitely mm. talking about yeah the hostile environment state violence mm. austerity and what that has meant for domestic violence survivors like it's so powerful thinking about it on all those different levels but equally just so just it was so sad reading like you it's yeah. written so well your paper but it was just so so sad reading because you bring all these things to a head and talk about how it just relates to more recent news we found that more men are killing their partners yeah. and it just you read that paper and it's like of course that's what's going to happen yeah. a few years ago when we first started the podcast is a counselor a social worker and she was talking in 2017 about the problems that they were having with some and this again this is a problematic term but migrant communities and particularly women within migrant communities in struggling to access or not accessing mental health services general social services and refuge centers because they were worried about their partner and who was a perpetrator the impact of the hostile environment fears of deportation like it's so messy yeah it's so messy like listeners you'll see when you definitely need to read the article in the episode notes you really lay it out like Mm. quite well that obviously clearly was your intention to do that but that messiness of and relating it back to yeah Kimberly Crenshaw and how her talking about intersectionality and how essentially the state was always doing a disservice to black women when they thought they were doing a service to black people by not stereotyping or blaming black men for perpetrating violence and like you can see how similar that is to what you frame in this article Mm. I don't know if you want to talk about yeah that was great good it's good it's it's very well written it's (laughs) testament to you guys it is it took a long time to write Um, if anyone tells you that articles don't take long to write they're lying god yeah it was it was you know it can be a painful process Mm. going back and forth back and forth but I'm so glad it's The article really talks and focuses a lot on um, the hostile environment and migrant women and their particular experiences of women's services that work very closely with the criminal justice system, so then the police and the courts. The investment in these kinds of initiatives that are very criminal justice focused are part of that law and order agenda that I was talking about before. Some women's organisations, actually quite a lot now, you know, I used to be working as an an independent domestic violence advocate, which is tends to be a role that was introduced you know, in the last 20 years to focus much more on those supporting survivors through the criminal justice system, trying to get more perpetrators nicked and, and convicted. The impact of that, obviously, is not going to be felt equally, and that's why I wanted to apply an intersectional lens, because, you know, it's quite a universalistic policy and um, initiative to sort of say, right, what we need to do is just get the police involved deal with the perpetrator, lock him up, and then she'll be safe. When you're an undocumented migrant survivor, then obviously your experience of that is going to be just completely different. Completely different. One of the police officers that I interviewed spoke about this and spoke about a particular case where the police actually turned up to the um, house and themselves witnessed this woman being assaulted, being strangled by a partner. And as soon as she saw the police, she, she left immediately. She ran away. 
And they knew that she was worried about her immigration status. And he spoke to the domestic violence advocate, the IDVA, the Independent Domestic Domestic Violence Advocate, to try and relocate her, to try and support the prosecution. They helped him find her. Like, they had a number for her where they'd been in contact with her in the past. And so he was like, oh, yeah, it was great. You know, they're great because obviously she, you know, she trusts them more and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. But she was worried about her immigration status. That's why she didn't want to be in contact with the police. So I was like, well, what actually did happen with that? And they were like, well, yeah, we did refer her to the Home Office. Obviously, we know, especially with the situation now, once you're flagged to the Home Office, it's it's pretty much game over. It is game over. And I don't think that the IDVA who was supporting that police officer really understood the ramifications of doing that. But, you know, the hostile environment and the sharing of information has become so toxic, so messy. This is what, exactly, when I was reading the paper, I was thinking, literally everyone that's involved in these sorts of decisions needs to read this paper Mm. to understand the interconnected nature and how close you are to state violence. Yeah. Like, you go from the violence of your partner to the violence of the state. And they back each other up because, you know, I spoke to people who said that their perpetrators said to them, you know, if you go to the police, I will get you deported. And the state pretty much just backs him up, (laughs) you know. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) It's like a new, like, that sort of abuse. Like, I mean, we can't, I I don't, we haven't got time to get into the intricacies of different types of abuses, but that emotional abuse. Yeah. That is just like honestly makes me want to cry. It is it's <laughs> like, honestly like, shocking, it's just, and but it's so accessible because it's so yeah. prominent in the news in yeah. our daily lives. The hostile yeah. environment it's so pernicious that of course an abuser could use that. Yeah, yeah, and I know people that have said that they felt targeted when a, like a new partner found out that they had insecure immigration status. That that would then became the flag for them to be able to get them to do what they wanted them to do. Blah blah blah. Get them involved in crimes that they want to be involved in all sorts of things like that and it's like the state just backs up that kind of interpersonal violence and interpersonal abuse with this kind of bureaucratic form of abuse and state violence and they reinforce each other and it's 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 really disturbing but yeah I do think it is it is so important for it's not just domestic violence charities it's all kinds of charities that are involved in working with migrants now really need to understand you know, some of them, I think, you know, St. Mungo's had a lot of intense scrutiny over their involvement with the Home Office, taking border agents out with them when they're doing, you know, walkabouts, talking to people on the streets as a means to pick up insecure migrants and deport them. You know, that's obviously a much more like they've actually signed up for that. And, you know, I know that there are people that work. I've got friends that work for St. Mungo's who are who are really working hard within that organisation to change that and to change the, you know, the leadership and, and the policies that are going on there, you know, and I really respect those people that are working there who are doing, like, the casework. But, you know, the fact that the bosses are signing up to that, those kinds of agreements is, what, for what, for a bit of funding? Mm. Is it worth it? Mm. So you've gone so far away from, you know, your, your what's supposed to be your... I mean, charities are whatever anyway, but mm. you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> You know, I'm obviously very critical of the whole charity NGO Sector. industrial complex mm. anyway. But I know that there are a lot of people who work there who, who do have good values and really don't want to see that happening to the people that they're working with at all. So, yeah, like, you know, I want people to understand 
this and as the hostile environment gets more and more intense we need to come up with some kind of way of resisting this and understanding this I know like in the medical professions you've got docs not cops Mm -hmm. and the NHS actually have been really good at resisting and fighting back against the demands being placed on them by the home office to information share and I think there was even maybe about a year ago I think they won an appeal to 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 say that they don't have to share patient data anymore I think this needs to go across the board anyone working with migrants needs to understand their role within this Um, yeah yeah in the university even just thinking about academia yeah I did a speaking thing recently and I asked for, in order for me to get paid mm. is by an institution, I had to send a copy of my passport. Oh, yeah. And so many of the, like, I've, I've had this, like, literally like, just and doing it. Tony, now, just talking to you, I know we're talking about domestic violence and I am very much secure in my yeah. citizenship status. Well, I don't know, anything can happen now, but, like, <laughs> yeah, it? I know. I literally, I'm saying as a brown woman, like, <laughs> dad I wasn't born here. Like, saw, it's, not, it's not secure, sorry. I saw, like, someone who, like, is, like, stranded in Brussels because they've just erroneously just made him stateless. And I'm just that, like, yeah. like, because they've just claimed that he lied on his national naturalization you're like oh yeah we just we think you're albanian so we've just decided it's like i mean that couldn't that just happen to anyone can they just send you a letter and be like we think you're from here so you don't deserve a passport it's it's, yeah (laughs) what it's just wild it's just it's just shocking i remember actually you just think about university and university acting as a border like when i was in my master's 2013 Mm. I remember Birkbeck having problems, having like speaking to academics at Birkbeck, being yeah. like having to refuse to share information. Oh, it's just yeah. I mean, because that, that's what they um, why they ended up bringing a lot of the universities the the tapping in with your card to prove that you went to and because a lot of like the university staff were refusing to basically inform on their students and when yeah. they weren't want and when they were like tearful migrant students. And now they brought in this thing where they're like, fine, if you're not going to do it, we can just tap it in. And it's like, it is so, it is so pernicious. And the level of surveillance is actually scary. It is really scary. And, you know, you'd be mistaken to think it actually stops at, you know, I think obviously there are some people who are going to be extremely much more vulnerable to this. But I think it'd be a mistake to think that this is just a migrant issue. Yes. It is, it is so much wider and deeper than that and like you say it's like people of colour generally mm. like, and we've seen with Windrush it doesn't it's a scary time to be in this country and be a person of colour even if you have British citizenship mm. you know we still feel like we were talking before we started recording that we're recovering from the general election yeah. defeat and I know both of us sort of put a lot of ourselves into that campaign and for the whole of this episode, it just feels I'm trying to find like where the light is or where the <laughs> hope is. But actually, it's about to get very, as Tisa would say, peak <laughs> out here. It's peak oh, times ahead. God. I feel like it's only even in the last few weeks. So when it's the, it's the end of February right now, when I've started to recalibrate how I position myself within activism, what I do with myself, where am I going to be most useful? Because I just couldn't for a bit. I needed to, like, mourn. Mm. I definitely... I went through a whole period where I felt like I was... had a hangover every day for, like, several weeks. And I would just wake up and it would just be like, oh, God, I'm so sad. 
and so and so much pain. The first thing I felt was just so sorry, just really sorry. Just I wanted to apologize to everyone yeah. somehow. I, totally I don't know why. I just wanted to apologize. I felt apologize. so guilty. I wanted to I thought, apologize yeah. to everyone that I'd knocked on their door and I'd like said like, you know, if Labour wins, then these are all the things we're, we're going to achieve and this is what's going to happen. And I wanted to go and knock on their doors and be like, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> like that. I didn't do it. I didn't work hard enough and I didn't, you know, we didn't, I really believed that we could do this, but, it, you know, yeah, I just felt so, so sorry, weirdly. It was such a weird feeling. I, I guess I've never been in any, involved in anything on that national scale before. I've done local community yeah. organising and local direct action stuff. But to, to be part of this, like, wider movement of people across the country, canvassing, knocking on doors in the rain and, like, the cold, the cold and, like, yeah. you know, these moments where you thought, like, oh, God, maybe we can do it. Yeah, afterwards, I just felt like the the disappointment was just so much more magnified than anything I'd ever experienced in my life. It's unbelievable. Like, I totally hear you. I <laughs> totally hear you. Oh. And I remember saying that to my dad a couple of days after and him being, like, you're learning you're learning how it feels. You're, you're, you're learning. People. You're learning how it feels. Like my dad was invo- like involved in strikes in the seventies and eighties yeah. in Brixton, <laughs> anti-apartheid, all that stuff. Oh, and he's like, God. you're learning how that that feels. That disappointment. I was like, but I don't want to learn it. I want things to change. I want things to be better. Like, this what is, is wrong is with the, wanting is, a better life for this everyone? This is the scary bit because. It's in this like collective disappointment that I'm I'm seeing where people's politics and where where everything when the dust settles. Oh mate, and it is. Be like, this like... is this is what has got me. And you've heard me say this on the podcast before. Some of you leftists needs to check yourself. I'm like getting worried. you are. They will throw us under the bus. I'm getting worried now. They will throw us under the bus. And everyone, and through that disappointment, people feeling the need to like move to the centre, um, feeling the need to capitulate and compromise. And I'm like, oh God, it's just like you're not learning the right, you're not learning from this in the right, the right way. It's just like it's, it's happened. We've been through this before. And this is what is disappointing, I think, about the Labour Party response and almost some, not naming any names, some leftist media organisations' responses. To not actually learn from what has happened and the mistakes that were made, especially in terms of how anti-racism has to be at the yeah. heart of class politics. And I just feel like they're so easy they're so easily want to just drop that. And I, that. I mean, like one of the things that I, you know, have become inspired by one of the things that I do do when trying to figure out a way through difficult political questions mm. and um moments like this is like looking at history and looking at the past and looking at what has won and what has worked in the past that is like you know my absolute refuge in times of like political despair because there have been wins yes and you can learn from them and you can even learn from the mistakes that they've made along the way but you can learn from the wins um one of the people that i really love is like learning from is david rosenberg i don't know if you've ever been on any of his history walks Mm. i invited him to do a history walk the other day as a teach out on the picket line and it was absolutely great um and actually in one of his books i think it's called rebel footprints it talks about you know the battle of cable street and in the East End, B 
big anti-fascist fight that 100,000 people in the streets kicked out the fascists and the police Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) and won and like amazing amazing day and something that we all like you know in our radical history and our kind of memory like really need to like yeah. keep alive it's such a bit like I think the Battle the bat- the of Cable shit we talk about so much on this podcast it's like <laughs> Tiso's like favourite moment in history like yeah but one of the other aspects of that ongoing fight in the East End that um, David Rosenberg writes about is um, the Stepney Housing Defence League, I think it was called. Everything was called a league in the 30s. <laughs> no one's into leagues no more. No. Like. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The League of Nations. <laughs> Everything's a league. Anyway, so they had the Stepney Housing Defence League, I think it was called. And um, he actually says that a lot of the like ongoing struggles was like obviously bigger than that one day. It culminated on that one day in a big, massive fight. But actually, a lot of the community organising that was happening also helped to kick out the fascists and he uses this one story of I think it is a um, rent strike of an estate in Stepney where two of the residents were British Union fascist um, members family as families um, who also ended up in this rent strike alongside Jewish Jewish residents and like the strike sounds amazing they like it was one landlord who owned all of these tenements or something and they like did the rent strike for like 16 17 weeks or something like that they barricaded the whole estate and even the milkman could only get in with like a special pass and a password like and they had like people (laughs) literally on the barricades day in 24 hours a day the strike won and the BUF members tore up their membership cards and decided that they didn't want to be fascists no more. And <laughs> because they'd fought alongside mm. people from all these different backgrounds that they had been previously taught to be suspicious of and that the, were the reasons for their problems, when actually fighting in solidarity against a common enemy showed them some a different kind of way of thinking about it. And there's, there's, there are examples of this kind of organising and deliberate organising where, you know, they targeted fascist areas to try and change their minds. It happened in the 70s as well. There's like a film, Do Something, on B- BFI. Great, great film. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's about children's playground and a, a housing action group in Islington. And um, an undercurrent of it is just actually about bringing, like, black and white families together um, black and white children to play together in mm. this, you know, abandoned um, bomb site where they just like banging nails into bits of wood. I mean, it's not yeah. the kind of playground that we imagine now. But yeah, like... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, not got a zip wire. <laughs> no, nothing like that. They're just like bashing shit. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? They look pretty happy with it. And then this housing action group that like is dealing with a lot of the resentments of like white residents who are, are, are thinking like oh yeah this immigrant family's come along and they got housed before me and blah 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 and actually everyone who's housed like housed there is living in an absolutely derelict place that is about to be torn down mm. and no one's having a great time but they, these rumors start flying yeah and it's actually by forming that housing action group that you people start to see like we're all in the same boat we're all fucked mm. and the only thing we can do is fight and there's one part of that film where like which really struck me and kind of shocked me a little bit. And it's kind of like different from, I think, our current politics and the way we deal with racism and fascism, things like that. And there's like a young guy who, um, with his mates, had been like attacking the playground workers 
because they like get black kids and white kids to play together, mm. have been beating them up on the way home or harassing them. And one of them gets put in prison and the other one ends up hanging around with fuck all to do. And the guy gives him a job <laughs> in the playground. I'm like, fucking hell, but he's mm. like a fucking... I mean, I don't know if he's like an ideological like white mm. supremacist, but he's definitely a bit of like street bully boy. Gives him a job and his mate gets out of prison. He's like completely changed. He's like been de-radicalised. Mm. And he's like, you know, oh, you know, th- these kids just want someone to play with. Yeah, they don't care who they play with. It's only their parents and their big brothers that are like putting these ideas in their mind. Yeah. I've changed my mind. And his mate's like, but you used to be racist like me. And he's like, yeah, I've read about it. I've thought about it and I've actually changed my mind. I'm like... We don't actually have a lot of that in our politics in the no. left, actually, to be honest, in this day. like, And I think we're worse for it. And I think, for me, what happened in the general election and what's been happening over the last 20 years, I think, I, you know, in terms of my politics and where I've been and what, I, what I've been organising on, I feel like I do bear some responsibility for, like, the focus that I've taken and what I have missed out and what I haven't done. And what I did when I was canvassing was essentially knocking on the doors of people whose opinions like are not like my opinions, you know, not like organising in Hackney, even organising with people that come from very different backgrounds than me, or even more conservative than me in lots of ways, still generally agree with me about a lot of things. Mm. Knocking on doors around the country, I was like, I don't, I don't do this. I don't do this in my organising, and I think. I think we do need to do more of that. We do need to actually target areas where these resentments uh, are building up and the answer that they've got for why their life is shit is because of immigrants. I think we need to be... The only answer for me, based on like looking at history, is to build something where people can work in solidarity with each other and actually see that they have things in common that the reason why your housing is shit is not because of your black next door neighbour. It's because you've both got the same landlord. Mm. Who's a Tory, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's so, honestly, I'm, I'm sat here and I'm nodding. I'm sure lots of listeners you know I mean? are because it is such a, it's such a hard pill to swallow. That, yeah. that is what has got to come next because we have spoken about this intimately since the general election. The problem that I have with this method is how many more times have I got to persuade our peers that are in precarious positions, that are black, that Mm. are Asian, that are working class, hang on, we just need to give Gary and Steve a bit more time. (laughs) We just need to tell Gary and Steve or Tracy, like, literally, we need to just tell them that we're human as well. We need them to understand that is a hard pill to swallow that we have to keep doing that. And I think a lot of people are tired. I don't think I don't think yeah. you're wrong, basically. I agree with what you're saying. I think that is how we as organizers on the left have to move forward. What is more difficult is the extent to which that anti-immigrant mm. racist voting, I would describe it, yeah. has spread across areas that I thought that we were. Yeah safer effectively and it's it's so difficult because it's I'm lost words because I'm lost words because I agree with what you're saying it's it's getting so much harder as we become more autonomous gain more capitals as black people it's Mm. like actually we're like 
I don't want to deal with this racism anymore. I don't yeah. want to do that. But actually, in order to fully achieve material liberation, to have our full caste consciousness, we have to do it together. And unfortunately, Gary and Steve need more attention in understanding that their class, their material conditions yeah. are not because of my existence. Yeah. I have been I have been involved in a few different struggles where I have seen some transformational moments that haven't even necessarily been predicated on having those deep conversations yes. about no I agree know, it doesn't have to be like, deep does oh, it oh you're a Muslim and you're trans and like we you know oh we're supposed to like not like each other blah 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 but it, sometimes it is literally just doing the work together that yeah. humanizes you that humanizes someone that you've never really like spent any time around or thought about or even just like eating together and being like, okay, well, we're doing this for each other. And actually, if you're in that space, if you're in some kind of organising space, whether you're in a renters union or whatever, the point is you kind of have to agree to have each other's backs as a minimum. And if there are no spaces where you come to and that is the agreement, then I think, yeah, that is the problem. I mean, those conversations with Gary and Steve, I think will or may happen, but fundamentally, if Gary and Steve are invited to the renters' union, or invited to the social centre, because they've got a housing problem, and it happens that there are Muslims there, and it happens there are migrants there, who also have a housing problem, and they need something, then fundamentally, the agreement there is, okay, we're going to all sort this out together. Do you agree to stay and sort it out together? That's the fundamental. And then work from that point. I think, for me... That has been missing in a lot of organising and it has been missing in a lot of like left organising and the assumptions we have about how we can create safe spaces. I'm like, there is no safety. There is no safety. We're under a far right government. We need each other. We need Gary and Steve as well. Oh, <laughs> Mia's gone in literally. <laughs> She's gone in. And I just lost the words because it's so hard. Like, it's so hard taking it in. I like, know. it's so hard taking it in because you are right. You are we right. We need all of us. We need we all do of need us. All. And I've been organising like we don't need Gary and Steve and I'm sorry but that election taught me we're going to have to convince Gary and Steve that there's another way. <laughs> we, we are going to have we are going to have to but and, and just to be clear as well me and you, we can do this. Yeah. But that isn't, we don't, I feel like black people, yeah. brown people, liberation is that they don't have to. They don't all, yeah. not everyone has to. And I get that and I respect no. that. And there are so many reasons, valid reasons why they don't want to be in a room or sat next to a Darren Steve. I'm a big believer <laughs> that there are many, many different roles in the revolution. Yes. If you just want to send some emails... Send some emails from your house. That's fine. We need someone to be doing yeah, that. Yeah, we do. Checking an we email need account. We need if you don't want to be, cha- if you don't want to be in a social centre having these conversations, that's fine. There are many, many, many different roles. There ooh, are so ooh, many different. Just roles. quickly, um, Avi, I need to talk to you about <laughs> a few other groups. Yeah, okay. go on, go on, go on. John and Peter. One lives in Hampshire. <laughs> one lives in Surrey. Are they part of the movement? It's a really good question. I think it depends. I remember listening to your episode. I'm going to do like cross referencing here. Oh, God. <laughs> um, with Danny Dorlin. Oh, at home. <laughs> Excellent. One of my favourite episodes of having oh. here. Like, I really learned a lot from that. Um, Big up, Danny. We'll yeah, come nice with the one. facts. Nice one, Danny. <laughs> um, and he was sort of saying about um, actually a lot of the people that voted for Brexit, like, even though it's kind of got this like media. Um, 
uh, image of it being like working class people, yeah, like across the country in the forgotten towns, blah blah blah. But actually, proportion is much more likely to be what home you call Anthony and what's his face, um, John and John, John and Anthony, John and Peter. Anthony and Peter, yeah. in the home counties, <laughs> yeah. And he kind of p- painted a bit of a picture of actually these people like are not like the worst off, but they're this like squeezed middle. And I think there is some analysis. Like, I'm desperate for someone to write a new, like, 21st century succinct class analysis of what is going on. Because, like, you know, like, Marx and all of that, fantastic, really important. Like, but there are parts of it that isn't relevant to the way our economy works today and the way class operates today in 21st century Britain. I'm desperate. I'm not an economist, Mm. like, so I'm not that guy. Mm. But I really want, if there's anyone out there that's, Mm. like, feeling a bit Karl Marxy, yeah. please Hits write up. this. Hits please yeah, write right. this yeah, because yeah, it yeah. operates differently. And I think, you know, we've had this like big burgeoning middle class, like people that, are, you know, like I you know, grew up near Essex and there were all these people like, oh yeah, got a business in plumbing, made loads of money. Yeah. East End have done good, blah, 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 blah. Aspirational working class. Aspirational That's working my, class. It's my white family. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. All of that who, like, in the latter part of the 20th century, made a load of money, bought the house, blah, blah, blah. But now it's actually not looking as rosy as it was. I mean, arguably, you could say that their, like, position within the middle classes was always quite contingent and was always precarious. I would say there are some within them who need to be brought back into class consciousness. Yeah, I do. And I think there's always, you know, this is kind of linked to, like, the demise of the trade unions where... There were, in the past, people, you know, working different kinds of levels with different levels of privilege, money, blah, blah, blah. But people did have more class consciousness. So even if you were at the top of your game, if you were in the union, even if you had more money than the cleaner or whatever, you considered yourself a member of the working classes and you considered yourself to be uh, fighting the same fight. And I think that has been missing, deliberately missing, for the last 30, 40 years. I would say... Not everyone within that class that you you mention is necessarily ripe for, you know, radicalisation. But there are some within that that I think, actually, you've been mugged off and you've been told that you're middle class and you ain't middle class. You're not middle class. You've had a bit of something for 10 years and you've gone now. Mm. So you need to actually wake up to the fact that you're no different than the rest of us. But I guess (laughs) the problem is here and arguably... Really important sociologists that have written about this as well more recently, mm. Nicola Benson, Gminda Bambra, yeah. Diane Dorlin, talking about how those quote-unquote liberals or John, yeah. these lot, yeah. are actually probably more dangerous than Gary and Steve because yeah. Gary and Steve aren't actually voting. They, yeah. they, they've got a few mates that are a bit racist, like they say what they say, <laughs> but who is yeah. actually going out and voting for people that are putting our yeah. lives at risk? Yeah. It's difficult, isn't it? It is difficult. And I think, I don't know, this is why I kind of want to have some kind of clearer understanding of how class is operating in 21st century Britain. I really, I I notice things and I I have my own analysis, but I really want someone to write this book because I think it is different. Things have changed. We've got like service economy, got people on zero contracts. People make all of these assumptions about the flat cap guy Mm. in Newcastle being like the working class, but it just doesn't look like that anymore. No, no, definitely. And like, yeah, where do people like you're talking about fit within that structure who are like maybe the squeeze middle, but have power still. Mm. And when they don't have class consciousness and they're operating or they have 
a different kind of class consciousness. They they consider themselves to be maybe more upper class than they actually are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, what does that mean in terms of how class operates in 21st century? I want someone to write that and I want someone to write it quickly because... <laughs> You know, we've got a lot we of work to, to do. We've got a lot, a lot, a lot of work, <laughs> to, lot of work do. to do. It doesn't have to be a book. Just a couple of pamphlets will do. Come I was on. actually talking. I was actually <laughs> talking to Danny, and I think I, I don't know if he's actually written about this, but we were talking before the episode started about um, our families being from working class background, mm. but, all, but us sort of being at a little bit outside of that in terms of our professions. Um, yeah. And I'm definitely more outside of that economically as well as professionally now, but in order for my family to keep going and yeah. for everyone in my close family to keep going on my mum's side, I've had to be actively involved in facilitating yeah. that. And you talk about that yeah. yourself. So what Danny was talking about is how there's now individuals that grew up in 80s, 90s and whatever who are effectively coming out of their working class credentials but keeping their family with them and how that's a really important part of our class analysis now. Like, there's people... 100%. Yeah. 100%. And this is where I feel like, like class consciousness is an important part of that as well for me. Um because, yes, economically, things have changed for me. However, n- nowhere near as much as I thought they were when I decided to go to university. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. my God. I thought it would be, like, the 90s, but, like, now. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, I did not sign up for this bullshit. Yeah. But, like, yeah, like, literally a third of my week is probably sorting out universal credit for different family members, keeping them going, keeping them surviving. Mm. And I, you know, and Nyren Bevin, who was, like the um, health minister that brought in the NHS, um, you know, come from a mining family in Wales. It's, I think he was even a miner himself when he was mm-hmm. young. And he said he had no intention of, like, leaving the working class. Like, he'll rise with his class. And that's the way I see it. No matter how much money I earn or whatever, like, I've learned along the way or any, like, qualifications that I've, I've, I've got, I will only use that to rise with my class, I'm not going anywhere out of my class. Like, I will fight that. And I will I will own up to the privileges that I've got, 100% within that, but I'm not going anywhere without everyone else. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. <laughs> and that's a brilliant place to end. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so it's like, that felt really therapeutic, but equally really hard. Like, really? and I don't, I think I was... I think it's only now that I was ready to hear you tell me what is next. (laughs) It's only now that I was ready for that because I was pissed off in December with these people. I'm pissed still. Yeah, I'm still pissed. I'm I'm still, as well as agreeing with you on what is next for us, I'm still very conscious of racism. Yeah. And how that is operating within the everyday and that just not being okay in general. But yeah. We yeah. know what we've got to do next, guys. Aww, thank you so much for having me. What <laughs> a great Thank you. Thank great you time. so much for being here. That was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Big up, George. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be... Oh, this is our last Alternative to Women's Hour for this season, but we'll be back in the summer with more. Thank you, guys, and speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. Please support the podcast by rating, following and subscribing on your preferred podcast platform. And please consider supporting the production of the podcast by joining our Patreon community. 